I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for starting your week with us. Late last month, we announced some sad news to you, our Takeaway listening community. After 15 years as the only daily national radio show and podcast produced by WNYC, the executives here at New York Public Radio have decided to cancel The Takeaway. Our very last episode will air on June 2nd. And as part of this cancellation, WNYC chose not to reassign any member of our fantastic team of radio makers and sonic storytellers. But listen, we just can't let this all go down without taking some time to showcase the truly extraordinary team of professionals who've been bringing you the stories that you value and the shows that you love. So for the next two weeks before the final episode, we're going to be highlighting some of the work of our fabulous producers. We're calling it our Producer Appreciation Weeks. And trust me, you do not want to miss these episodes. We're starting it all off today with our producer, Katerina Barton. Hey, Melissa. Great to be here behind the mic with you. Yes. Now, you're one of the four people on our current team who've been here at The Takeaway the longest. I mean, I have nothing on Jay and Vince. They've been here for 15 years at WNYC. But yeah, I started back in January 2020 as an intern at The Takeaway and around the same time that our line producer, Jackie Martin, also started. And then I came back in 2021 and started working with you and this amazing team. I totally remember that. And it is an amazing team. And Katarina, you're definitely one of the stars. I hope you know just how much I've relied on your sophisticated news judgment, your careful research, your clutch writing, your flawless editing. And one of the most important roles you've played for this team has been articulating our mission and helping all of us to think about the reasons why we make this show. Oh, I really appreciate that. Um, And I think what I have loved most about working with you and producing for The Takeaway is that we cover daily news, but we also cover stories that you might not be hearing in other places. And we also speak to people on the ground about how issues are impacting them. And that's what we did with the residents of Gordon Plaza. I love this story. Remind our listeners about it. Well, I started talking to the residents of Gordon Plaza last year in April. Gordon Plaza is a subdivision in New Orleans. It was established in the late 1970s, and it was built and advertised as a place for middle and low-income, predominantly Black families to create new opportunities to help them buy into the American dream. But that American dream soon became a nightmare. Exactly. And what many of these families didn't know was that this land used to be an old landfill And it was just a general dumping ground, and all of this waste was leaching into the soil. We are being told, you know, we're living on top of a toxic waste landfill, and we weren't aware of this when we purchased our homes. We are the second highest cancer-causing neighborhood in the state of Louisiana. But it wasn't until 1994 when the EPA tested the land and designated it as a toxic Superfund site. Which means people are not supposed to be living there, right? Yeah, I remember I spoke with Wilma Subra. She's a technical advisor to the Louisiana Environmental Action Network. And she had been working with the residents in the 80s and 90s trying to get the EPA to test the land. And just her description of it was kind of shocking. 
So then you had benzene, toluene, xylene, ethyl benzene, the volatile organics that are known and suspected to be cancer-causing agents, polynuclear aromatic hydrocarbons, and then you also said the heavy metals, mercury, lead, zinc, all of these things were combined in that landfill that this entire subdivision was built on top of. And you could actually sit in people's yards and just with your hands, you could dig the grass and the very shallow surface soil out and get to the waste. So the exposure was right there. Ooh, that list of chemicals. Now, this story is from last year, but there have been some updates? Yeah, there have been some updates, and the city has moved forward with trying to relocate the residents. But first, I think there's a lot of value in listening back to this segment before the city took any action and hear what the Gordon Plaza residents have gone through in their own words. My name is Jesse Giovanni Perkins. I moved in Gordon Plaza in May of 1988. Jesse bought a house for his mother and himself, and he told us he was, quote, full of happiness to be able to buy it outright without a mortgage. But he wasn't aware the home was built on toxic land. My name is Marilyn Amar, and I'm a resident of Gordon Plaza. My home was sold to me by the city of New Orleans, built on the top of the Agriculture Street landfill. Marilyn first moved into the apartment complexes in the Gordon Plaza subdivision and then bought a home there. I moved in this area in 1970, not knowing this was a former dump site or landfill that was not told to me when I moved into the apartment complex and lived there for years and then bought the home in Gordon Plaza, which is just one block difference. That was not told to me about being a landfill where chemicals were dumped. Both Jesse and Marilyn have been outspoken advocates for their community over the past three decades. And they've sought help from the city for relocation expenses. But they just don't feel like anyone is listening. I'm under the impression that they don't really care. We're not a priority. Anytime you say you care about your people and the quality of life and public safety, then what is a bigger public safety issue, a quality of life issue than what we are being faced with? But what else does it take? We don't live near a Superfund site. We live on top of a Superfund site. Jesse told The Takeaway about the steps he takes to protect himself, his neighbors, and his family while doing everyday things like yard work and mowing the lawn. I do the lawn around here, all my, my neighbors. I just do it. I, I do the entire block. So when I'm doing it, I used to wear long sleeves, but I make sure when I'm stirring up the grass and the dust and everything else that's in there that I have a mask on. I was wearing a mask way before COVID came out because I didn't want to have all of that stuff going into my lungs and possibly exposing me, you know, I mean, there's different transmission rates through the skin from the pores, you know, through ingestion and just breathing. So I try to limit the amount of dust particles that I breathe when I do the lawn. Jesse also wanted to put up swings and a slide in his backyard so his granddaughter could play. But he was concerned about exposing her to toxins in the soil. We try as best as possible to give her as less contact with, especially bare spots in the yard. I try to mitigate those things. You know, if I got to put something over and cover it. But then I had my yard tested about three years ago and uh, 
lead contamination was, I think, over 1,200 parts per million. And I think that is more or less designated for a non-play area. And I'm like, my yard is an extension of my home, so it should be a play area. So we really, really, really became concerned for, for her because of her, you know, development and growth. So what we did was we put a, we put a trampoline up. And she goes and bounces on that, and she's about four feet above the ground, and we feel comfortable with that. Not totally, but, you know, a little peace of mind. Even as they try their best to keep themselves and their families safe, illness and cancer have become routine realities for them. According to a 2019 report from the Louisiana Tumor Registry, Gordon Plaza's census tract has the second highest cancer rate in the state. Although the report also says it's hard to prove links between cancer and certain exposures. But Jesse has plenty of stories. Well, two of my board members, one lady's about 78 years old and the other's about 72. They both are in remission from cancer. We have two people that are unofficial officers. They organize with us also. They both are in remission from cancer also. We've lost two people right down the street from where I live for multiple cancers, including brain cancer and bone cancer. And right around the corner, a 16-year-old girl died from leukemia. And next door to that young lady, a 63-year-old lady passed from multiple myeloma. One of the ladies who who in remission from um, cancer, her husband died about six months ago to colon cancer. One of the ladies that's in remission from cancer, her husband is currently battling colon cancer. One of the other neighbors' husband, he's on his third trial of chemo and radiation. So it's very widespread throughout the community. And Marilyn has experience with this too. I'm a five-year breast cancer survivor. I have respiratory problems. I have skin ailments from living on this toxic landfill. And it's not only cancer. Five people within a one-block span of uh, where I live, including my mother, developed dementia. I guess people would say, well, what does dementia have to do with, you know, these uh, carcinogens? Well, arsenic, from what the research that I've done, uh, is linked somehow to dementia. As the Louisiana Tumor Registry report noted, these things are hard to prove. But Jesse and Marilyn, they're quite convinced. Well, my children grew up here, but when they finished college, they left Louisiana. My son was ill for years. He had to drop out of college for some time. He had to have different types of surgeries because he had stomach problems and part of his intestines had to be removed because of living on this chemical landfill dump site. And he had to drop out of school, go back when he was well, drop out again, go back. But when he finally graduated, from college, he left Louisiana altogether. He comes to visit, he cannot stay over two days, he gets ill. So my children live away from Louisiana and they live away from New Orleans. And so they very seldom come back to this area. Now, some people might be listening to this and asking, why not just move? But you have to remember, this was a community built for elderly and low-income families in the 1980s. And the land has depreciated in value because of its status as a Superfund site. The 54 families left in this development, many feel trapped, but they continue to fight to be relocated. I can't afford to leave. 
I'm retired on a limited income. No one is going to give me a loan to buy another home. Plus, I'm a senior citizen. I can't afford to start a new mortgage. And if I could, I would not be here. People question that, you know, well, if you know it's there, why don't y'all just leave? If it were that simple, we'd all be gone. It's much more complicated than that. Jesse says even if he could afford to leave, there's still a matter of principle. Let's just say it's not just about the money, but it's going to take money to make this situation right for us. It is. It's nothing else is going to do it. And the city has the money. And that is the sad irony of this whole situation. We don't want to die here. We're going to die one day. All of us are going to die. But I don't want to die because my city neglected to do the right thing to remove me from a toxic waste landfill. Mm, And the residents have called this a prime example of environmental injustice and racism. That's right. Here's one last clip from Marilyn. We are Black families. These homes were sold to low and moderate income Black families. This is why we've gone through six mayors. This is why we're still here. And the fight was really strong back in 1994, but the people just gave up, died out and gave up. Now, since Hurricane Katrina, we started up again with the fight and we're not giving up because we want to live a quality of life, not on this toxic landfill. And we want future generations not to have to live on this landfill. So that's why we're still in the fight And we're not giving up, but I do believe because we're all Black families, and that is one of the reasons why we're still here. Now, KB, earlier you said that there are some updates? Yeah, Melissa, those families are still fighting. Last year, there was some movement in that fight. And in June, the New Orleans City Council allocated $35 million to buy the Gordon Plaza homes from residents and pay for their moving and relocation expenses. So uh, that means there's some good news? Well, yes, but it's still an ongoing process. The residents are still negotiating with the city council. And as you can imagine, there's a lot of bureaucratic red tape around how taxpayer money can be spent. So it's a slow process. But I talked to Marilyn and Jesse recently, and they are hopeful that this nearly three-decade fight may be finally drawing to an end. This segment is one that we were really excited about because it kind of accidentally became a segment about lady truckers. Lady truckers. I mean, this is like a cult classic favorite segment for me. I loved hearing from them. Me too. I loved hearing a different side of the trucking industry than you normally hear about. And this story started out as a pitch about the supply chain shortage and the shortage of truck drivers during the beginning of the pandemic. But I ended up reaching out to two lady truckers and they had some great insights to share. Um, And just a side note, shout out to the amazing control room for the music and sound effects you're about to hear. Trucking is an overwhelmingly male industry, but that is slowly changing. A 
2019 survey from Women in Trucking shows that 10% of over-the-road or long-haul truckers are women. And that's up from 7.8% the year before. Yeah, here we go again. Can you imagine having to be at work all day and listening to this beeping sound? This is Gretchen Waters. She's an over-the-road truck driver and travels all over the country making deliveries. Right now, she's hauling dog food from Joplin, Missouri to Atlanta, Georgia. Now, that beeping sound is a motion detector, and it goes off any time a car cuts her off. But despite that regular annoyance, Gretchen genuinely enjoys driving trucks. I really like it. It's a job that um, you get paid the same no matter what you look like, uh, no matter what age you are. All I really want is for you to be on time, communicate effectively, keep all the tires pointed in the right direction. And that is not hard to do, you know? <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, breaker 1-9, this here's a rubber duck. You got a copy on me, Big Ben? Come on. Trucking is not just about working on the road, it's about living on the road. It's kind of like working from home in that, you know, you're living kind of in this little studio apartment situation. I personally, uh, I sleep up on the top bunk for safety. If, If somebody were to break into the truck in the middle of the night, I would much prefer to be up above where they might not be expecting me and where I can try to deal with the situation from above. And I have a piece of like finished plywood on the bottom bunk, which allows me to cook, allows my dog space to be, um, it allows me space to roll out my yoga mat and work out and work on some of my arts and craft projects and stuff. I love that Gretchen is doing yoga and arts and crafts on the road. But supply chain delays and worker shortages not only affect consumers, they also impact workflow for drivers like Gretchen. Uh, It just means that it's a lot harder to manage the personal aspects of my life. It's harder to manage my time because this job really is a lot about discipline and time management. You know, there really are only so many hours in the day to be able to live out all different parts of, you know, who you are as a person. Um, And that has to get worked into a lot of unknown variables, which already includes, you know, construction traffic, urban traffic, breakdowns in equipment. Um, There's just, you know, out here you just really have to be ready for literally anything. And while she does love her job, she acknowledges it can be draining. A part of the reason that there is a truck driver shortage is that this job is not for everybody. It really requires an incredible amount of personal endurance and stamina, a lot of solid support in your home life. It really is a big deal to have a you know stable situation at home. I know a lot of people get off the road because you know they they cannot be present for what's happening at home, which is just as important to them as what's going on out here. But the sacrifice that truck drivers make is that you are never anywhere, and you're also kind of never really at home. And that's a big reason why a lot of people um, can't stay in the industry and why it's hard to attract new new people. Ruling hours requiring stamina, endurance, and sacrifice just might be part of the story of the truck driver shortage. All right, so of course, you know the classic car talk. We're doing some truck talk. 
Right. And I love the thought of Gretchen in her truck, reflecting on her job and sending us voice memos. And in this segment, Melissa, you also spoke with Jennifer Smith, a reporter at The Wall Street Journal, and Tierra Allen, also known as the Sassy Trucker. Now, Tierra, you really are the Sassy Trucker. I've seen you on Twitter and Instagram. Talk to me a little bit about what it means to be a a woman and a good-looking young woman who is um, driving trucks. Are people surprised when you get out of the truck? Are they um, are they helpful and and happy, or do you face discriminatory practices? Well, me being a young female truck driver, a lot of the people are surprised when I get out the truck. And some people are very helpful. Like sometimes when I'm at the shipper getting loaded and unloaded, they may offer to help me back up the truck. Sometimes they may even ask me they would like to buy me lunch. So with me, sometimes I love that because I like the attention that comes with it and the benefits. And also I like how sometimes I'm at the fuel station. They even come over to offer to pump my gas. And since I do YouTube and I share my stories along the way, a lot of people from social media, they notice me at the truck stop and say, hey, you're the sassy trucker. I watch your videos all the time. I like how you inspire other women truckers to become truck drivers as well. I wonder, Tiara, do you ever worry about personal safety um, as a result of that? We were talking with um, another uh, woman driver who was talking about if someone were to to break in, for example. And so I just wonder, um, when you're driving by yourself, do you still feel secure? feel secure because my truck has like a little alarm on it, a button, like it's called panic mode. It's in the back of the sleeper. So if someone comes near the truck, it'll just go off and it'll alarm my um, dispatchers that there's someone near my truck. So that's one thing that I do like about it. And also I use the seatbelt technique where you put the seatbelt around a door so someone tries to get in, they won't be able to get inside of the truck. I love it. You've thought about those things. Jen, I'm wondering in an industry um, like trucking, where you have such a high percentage of um, of men, very few women, and we know that so many women have been pushed out of the workforce during the COVID-19 pandemic, if one of the things that's happening is that trucking companies might actually be seeking to recruit women, and if so, what they're doing in order to make that possible. Well, trucking companies have been trying to recruit uh, female drivers for some time. And in part, that's because they they tend to have slightly better driving records, um, <laughs> which maybe I don't know if Tierra has some thoughts on that. Um, but they've been pushing for a long time to try and get more women in the industry. But for the reasons that were outlined at, at the opening of the segment, you know, you're away from home a lot. And one of the reasons women have been pushed out of the labor force during the pandemic is because of the lack of childcare. So the pandemic is exposing uh, issues in the industry that have been happening for, for decades. So I am sure they would love to hire more women. Um, and I actually did speak with a young woman who had just started trucking uh, recently in the last couple of months, and she loves it. So there may be more folks like her and Tierra out there. Well, Katarina, since we're all out here looking for work, maybe Team Takeaway needs to think about trucking as our next long haul gig. Oh, yeah. Takeaway truckers. And one thing that wasn't in the original story, but Gretchen shared with me, is that she listens to public radio out there on the road and also gave us a little shout out. So my home radio station is WUGA um, in Athens, Georgia. I listen to The Takeaway. It comes on at 3 p.m. I listen online. Um, 
one thing I really like about my job is it allows me to just really take in a lot of new information. It's it's really great having the freedom and stress-free, pressure-free situation in order to just be able to learn new things and open my mind. So I want to thank everybody uh, who works in public radio for all the content that you produce and for keeping me company out here on the road. Gretchen, if you're out there and still listening, thank you. We are so proud to have kept you company. You're listening to The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. And today, we're drawing the curtains back a bit and getting a little behind-the-scenes look at how we make The Takeaway. Still with me is one of our producers, Katarina Barton. Hey, MHP. It's KB here. And I know that sometimes people don't like to know how the sausage gets made, but hopefully this will be a little fun insight into the takeaway team. Oh, well, listen, we're not making sausage. No animals were harmed in the making of this radio. In fact, pups and kitties and noisy neighborhood bird life make pretty regular appearances in our morning Zoom meetings. That's true. Your dogs are often a current appearance. And those pet-filled remote morning meetings are where we pitch new ideas, and it's where we give feedback on what we've already aired. Last June, during Pride Month, we'd already produced many segments talking about and with people in the LGBTQ plus community. We had a series called Aging While Queer, and we talked about the new queer rom-com Fire Island, which was fire. (laughs) And of course, we had our ongoing series, Black Queer Rising. Right. And across all of it, we were using the word queer. And then our executive assistant, David Gable, kind of posed a bit of a challenge to our team. I think if we would take everyone on the takeaway team, and we are a very diverse team, and have them each write down the definition of queer on a piece of paper and one by one read them, we would get wildly different answers. So what does it mean? And that's when it got really interesting, because we had all the questions just within our team. What does queer mean to folks from the Academy versus Broadway? Seasoned journalists versus young reporters? Gen Xers, millennials, and Zoomers? I mean, what does the term mean to those who are in community and those who are allies? Exactly. And so we turned all of these questions into its own segment and kind of interrogated our own use of the word queer. And of course, we had some great listeners who called in to tell us what queer meant to them. Hi, this is Fancy from Petersburg. How do I feel about the word queer? I love the word queer. I wear it as a badge of honor. It was one of the first words that felt like home to me. I am Dawn from San Diego, California. I was working at a gay and lesbian bookstore in the 80s, and I couldn't stand the word queer. And then a friend came by wearing a Queer Nation shirt, and I said, what is this? How can you do this when that's the word they call us? And he said, my dear, they're going to call us queer no matter what. So I'm taking back the word, and I'm proudly wearing it, and you should too. And I did, and I proudly identify as queer. And to dive more into the history and etymology of the word queer, we spoke with Michael Bronski, a longtime activist and author and currently a professor of the practice at Harvard University. So talk to me about how this broad term queer can be so disruptive. What does it mean to embrace disruption rather than um, uh, sort of ask for inclusion? Or are they part of the same project? 
I think it's very instructive to think about where the first use of the word queer as a reclaimed word is 1990 from a group called Queer Nation. And that happens in, in after 10 years of the HIV AIDS epidemic in an ocean of enormous anger and hurt and pain. At that point, people, activists were so angry that of government uh, inaction, of common apathy towards men with HIV and AIDS, that they needed a word that would actually disrupt the more common civil discourse of gay rights or gay politics. And queer did that, right? Queer was shocking. Queer was in your face. Queer said, we're queer and we're angry and we're not going away, right? So in, in that way, if you look at a politic of queer disruption, meaning to upend the system, very different than to assimilate into the system, I went to the Brooklyn Pride Parade in Park Slope, and I talked to people on the street about the word queer and what it meant to them. And what was it like going out and interviewing folks in person? You know, it was my first Vox Pop reporting, so I was a little nervous. I actually brought some friends out with me so I didn't look so awkward standing there alone with a microphone. And I was really hoping people wouldn't be annoyed with me for trying to interrupt them and trying to talk with them. But everyone was actually really nice, and we had some good conversations. And everybody knows that the best pride happens in the center of the universe. That is Brooklyn, New York! I use the word queer to describe myself. I think that it's an all-encompassing description of a community, and I think it brings us all together. I love it. I think it's powerful. Um, I think it's like an umbrella term. Whoever wants to use it, uses it. And how do you feel about the word queer? I know the young people have reclaimed it but it really doesn't work for me. At first, when the word queer came out, like, after, like, kind of high school for me, it was kind of strange for me to hear that. But once I found out the definition of it, I think it's beautiful. I think it's good. Yeah. I loved this segment because we really had an opportunity to hear from people with such a wide range of opinions about this word. Yeah, I really learned a lot. And we even posed this question to our guest, Michael Bronski from Harvard University, who was kind of giving us a little background on the history of the word. And we first heard from Jude, who is non-binary and queer. I think queer inherently is permission to be in a community of individuals that don't want to be a part of the status quo, can't be a part of the status quo, um, and are just fulfilled and happy being themselves uh, and with other people and exploring like who they are as individuals outside of the confines of what it means to be in like a binary, whether it's gender or sexuality or like whatever. Yeah. So Michael, what do you hear in the ways that they're making use of queer there? It's a liberatory word. And I think if you look at the history of the gay movements, because I believe there, there are multiple movements that have always been happening in the United States, right? There's a gay liberation movement that started right after Stonewall with the Gay Liberation Front, right? Which actually has its roots in uh, the Black Liberation Movement and Women's Liberation Movement. And then there's the gay rights movement. And both of these are completely valid movements and both of them sometimes work in concert and sometimes rub up against one another. And what queer does, right, it really speaks to the impulse of gay liberation, meaning to be liberated from the norm. In that sense, is the word too much of an umbrella? Does it, by, um, by creating space for so many, does it um, remove specificity about very particular histories and experiences? It has that potential, and it certainly has had that actuality in many people. I can remember being at a queer studies conference at, at Harvard 
1990. And at the end of the conference, a lesbian stood up and she said, I hate the word queer. It's one more way for gay men not to say lesbian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. right. Let's hear from, I want to hear from Sarah and Shep, both in their 70s, um, it, really around, um, around this issue. I find it offensive. We were beaten for too many years and called queer. I'm a lesbian. I'm, I'm proud of being a lesbian. I find the word queer offensive. I know young people like it, but if they were victims of homophobia back in those days and being called queer, they would not like it so much. And I don't like when they say reclaiming it because it was never ours to begin with. Not reclaiming it, they're co-opting it from heterosexuals who use it against us. Shep's argument that it's not reclaiming, but it's co-opting is, is really interesting. This argument I've never heard before. But I think what we're hearing, right, is differences of experience. And, you know, what Sarah was saying, I think it's quite correct that if people had lived through a certain time period, that creates a, an, an identity that is very specific to that time period. And that identity may not adapt to the present or what younger people are feeling. I completely respect people who are uncomfortable with it. I I respect their experience and their opinion. They're sort of fighting an uphill battle against history because it is so commonly used now. All right, we've got some more segments highlighting the work of our producer, Katerina Barton, when we return. It's the Takeaway Producer Appreciation Weeks. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for sticking with us on The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and I'm back with Takeaway producer Katarita Barton as we're kicking off our Producer Appreciation Weeks in advance of the final episode of The Takeaway on June 2nd. Hey, Melissa. Now, I know it's May, and we're hearing some Christmas music playing in the background, and I know you agree with me because I've already seen your holiday sweater collection, but it really is the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, it really is. And thank you for noticing that my Christmas sweater collection is staggering. Oh, yes. A different sweater for every meeting. And I also know that you also love a good holiday movie because we definitely talked about it. And I do, too. My cousin and I once had high hopes for starting a movie podcast where we would just watch and review all of the amazing and terrible Christmas movies that start coming out around Halloween. Katerina, have you just revealed your post-takeaway plans? I mean, all I need is a podcast name now, and we're good to go. (laughs) And one of my favorite things about The Takeaway is that, you know, we do the serious news topics and analysis, but we also have a lot of fun on the show. And we have our very own movie critic duo who like to bless us with their movie prescriptions for the various occasions. I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I'm Rafer Guzman. And together, we host Movie Therapy with Rafer and Kristen. And by the way, Kristen and Rafer are takeaway family. 
Kristen was a producer here for years, and Kristen and Rafer were the show's regular on-air movie critics. And obviously, this movie therapy session that we're about to play for you is focused on holiday movie prescriptions. Easily one of my all-time favorites with these two. I still can't get over what Kristen said about how many movies she watches. I usually try to watch about 60 holiday movies in 60 days in the lead up to Christmas all the way through uh, early January. I see them in the theater. I watch made-for-TV movies. I watch classics. I don't discriminate. I'll watch everything from, you know, the latest on Hallmark to the very exciting and very violent action movie, Violent Night. I will watch it all, and I will love it all, and I will stand up and cheer, and I will feel the holiday magic. Oh, I love it. How about you, Rafe? Are you with us on this? You know, uh, for some strange reason, I'm not a big Christmas movie fan, but my Christmas spirit comes from music. And I have a playlist of probably a few thousand songs, and they're all very obscure. You can't find them on streaming services. And so I compile them all on an old iPod, and I plug it into my stereo, and I drive my family insane with all these bizarre Christmas songs that I play every year. So that's my Christmas uh, ritual. I, I love that, like, your Christmas gift to others is something that they hate. That's, it's, that's exactly that's, right. <laughs> that's the spirit of giving there. All three of you together just brings me so much joy, I can't even explain it. And these segments are so fun for me to produce. I always get some new movie prescriptions from Rafer and Kristen, too. So let's listen to a couple of those movie picks. Kristen, I want to get right into your movie prescriptions, and you have one from this year. You say that this is the best Hallmark holiday movie. Let's take a listen. Who are you? Jason. Well, your family's neighbor. Jason's great with kids. I just need someone to help me until I get the hang of things. Oh my gosh, this is The Holiday Sitter, and it is Hallmark's first official gay Christmas rom-com. It stars Hallmark holiday star Jonathan Bennett, who many of us know best as Lindsay Lohan's crush in Mean Girls. And in The Holiday Sitter, he plays a child-free, commitment-full, big-city New York single who gets cornered into babysitting his sister's kids in the suburbs during the holidays. Along the way, he enlists the help of one of his sister's neighbors, a very handsome handyman who happens to be great with kids, played by George Crissa. And of course, the two hit it off. But can they overcome their differences? Will Christmas magic prevail? I'm not going to tell you. You have to watch to find out. It is a delight. It's a Hallmark movie. Is Christmas magic going to prevail? Come on. <laughs> no spoilers here, but yes, it will. <laughs> and and Raver, you also have a prescription for this season, um, a kind of best movie version of an ugly Christmas sweater. What does that mean? Well, uh, yeah, I call this an ugly Christmas sweater. I'll explain in a minute. This is a Netflix movie. Uh, we have a Lindsay Lohan connection here, too. This actually is the comeback of Lindsay Lohan. It's called Falling for Christmas, and it is her first major movie role in nearly a decade. And she plays Sierra Belmont. It's a thinly disguised version of Paris Hilton, if you ask me. She's a rich, spoiled hotel heiress who's never worked a day in her life. One day, Sierra goes up to a mountaintop with her boyfriend, Tad, who surprises her with a proposal, just like Paris Hilton's fiance did, as you may recall. But in this case, Sierra accidentally falls off the mountaintop, bumps her head, and develops amnesia. Oh, no. And she wakes up in the arms of a handsome, conveniently widowed guy named Jake, played by Cord Overstreet. And of course, 
now rich Sierra will have to be put to work in Jake's humble ski lodge. Now, okay, here is why I call this an ugly sweater movie, because I personally found it eye-watering. I could barely look at this film <laughs> while it was playing on my television screen. What, uh, I, gave... I loved it. Oh, I knew you'd love it. I knew you'd love it, Kristen. Uh, I gave this uh, one of my rare zero-star reviews. Um, however, the movie was a hit for Netflix. It was their number one movie briefly in November. Um, and you can find some pretty positive reviews out there. And I will say... Lindsay Lohan is actually not bad in it. You can see a little glimmer of the old magic there. So I would say some people found this ugly sweater of a movie to be kind of charming and endearing. I wouldn't be caught dead wearing it, but you know, some things are a matter of taste. If you're a Lindsay Lohan fan, check out Falling for Christmas. I would wear that sweater year round, Rafer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, amnesia, Lindsay Lohan, Christmas. Yeah, it's a little bit like, uh, you know, uh, it's a wonderful overboard is kind of how I would I would put this movie. Uh, this is such a fun segment. And I love how grumpy Rafer is about Hallmark movies. And you and Kristen are just so into them. And I really hope our listeners are having as much fun with this as we are. I hope so, too. I'm going to miss being able to do this this holiday season because there's nothing better than sharing some holiday cheer with a healthy dose of holiday movie prescriptions from Rafer Guzman and Kristen Meinzer, even if it's May. And this next piece is another fun one and has everything to do with the word play. Right, because we did this as part of our summer play series. We were all trying to think outside the box about how adults play and have fun and preserve their childlike spirit well into adulthood. And while I was researching some ideas, I came across a unique spin on what everyone calls America's national pastime. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Here comes the pitch. Great That is hammered into left. We're contenders now. My job is to be a professional goofball. Now, a lot of people have been calling baseball too long and too boring for many years. So much so that this year, Major League Baseball made a few key changes to make the sport faster paced and to draw in new audiences. Yeah, but I heard of a minor league team out in Savannah, Georgia, who was kind of already doing this, and it actually looked like a lot of fun. The Savannah Bananas are an unconventional baseball team that has nearly 6 million followers on TikTok. That's more than any major league baseball team. And I would be lying if I said I didn't spend a few hours watching Savannah Banana TikToks, you know, for the research. <laughs> All right, then. Let's roll that tape. On three, everyone in the stadium is going to say play ball. One, two, three. This wildly popular minor league baseball franchise has sold out every home game at their historic Grayson Stadium in Savannah, Georgia, since its founding in 2016. Fans come from miles away to watch the Bananas collegiate team in the summer and the pro Bananas throughout the rest of the year. These pros have become famous for their high-energy, quick-paced, and quirky game of banana ball. This is not baseball. This is not your granddad's pastime. This is the time for all 4,000 people here tonight to get up on your feet and give me your voices. Because this is the greatest show in sports. This is Banana Ball. 
And as you just heard, it's not just a game. It's a show where fans, players, and coaches alike dance, sing, and play. A number of sports reporters have compared the team's fun-filled approach to the trailblazing style of the Harlem Globetrotters. Savannah Banana Games include choreographed dances during the game, iconic walk-ups, players in kilts, and sometimes even a pitcher on stilts. And of course, lots of banana costumes. And before the first pitch is thrown, there's a Lion King-themed tribute to a different banana baby each game. Keep them going, fans, because it is now time to meet tonight's Banana Baby. Here with me now is Jesse Cole, owner of the Savannah Bananas. And fun fact, he owns seven yellow tuxedos and wears one to every game. Jesse, welcome to The Takeaway. I'm so excited to be with you. And Maceo Harrison is the first base dance coach and choreographer for the Savannah Bananas. Maceo, welcome to The Takeaway. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. Maceo, can I start with you? Because there was all kinds of debate about this. Are you the first base dance coach or the dancing first base coach? <laughs> well, it's either or. It's however you play, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, I always say first base dancing coach, um, but um, dancing first base coach is fine as well. <laughs> I love that. It's just, um, you know, I was I, I, I was saying to my director, I was like, so is the skill that he's teaching first basing or is the skill that he's teaching dancing? <laughs> it's uh, dancing and entertainment and goofiness. But uh, yeah, um, whatever rolls off the tongue, the easiest for people. I just let it happen. <laughs> So what is Banana Ball, Jesse? <laughs> it's the world's fastest and most entertaining game of baseball. So yes, we invented a new game uh, with a two-hour time limit where batters can steal first. Batters can't step out of the batter's box. There's no bunting. And even if fans catch a foul ball, it's an out. It's crazy. I love the idea that fans catching it also constitutes an out. It gets everybody you know, with, with some stake in this game. You spoke a little bit here about the inspiration to make these kinds of changes, you know, going from being a player um, to being an observer and, and suddenly having a different experience of the game. But what are the other core inspirations for you, Jesse? Well, seven years ago, my wife and I came to Savannah to launch a brand new team. And, you know, we only sold two tickets in our first few months. And, you know, by January of 2016, we overdrafted our account. We were completely out of money uh, and we had nothing left. We were sleeping on an airbed. And we knew we just had to do something that could get a bigger group of people excited to come see us play. And, you know, I read every book on Walt Disney and P.T. Barnum and, you know, started looking at the people that have brought so much fun to the masses. And we said, we're not in the baseball business. We're in the entertainment business. And we just started asking every question. What can we do that's fans first? And what can we do to entertain always? And uh, we've been fortunate now. Every game sold out and the wait list is over 75,000 for tickets. Uh, just blows my mind from where we started. You know, it's funny as you are saying that, you know, this is part of our um, ongoing segments around the issue of play. And, and Jesse, I guess I'm wondering when you are, you know, in that moment that is, you know, sleeping on the air mattress, right? You know, I've, I've come to these kind of like what feel like end of the road moments in um, and it can be hard to feel playful, right? Especially if, if your spouse is there, if your family is there. How do you maintain a sense of experimentation and play when you're facing like, okay, we got to pay some bills here? <laughs> we had no other options. You know, I wish I'd go back and say, you know, it was this clear thing that we did, but we just got up every day, showed up, 
and we believed in something. And when you truly believe in something and you believe in, you know, every game, our players deliver roses to little girls in the middle of the game. Every game, Maceo not only does dancing and people go crazy, but he gets in the crowd. He interacts with thousands of fans in the middle of the game. And I knew that if, if we could do that, we'd break down the barriers. And so it's hope, it's optimism, but it's just showing up. And, and I, I realized that my wife and I, that if we could just get people to show up that first game and see it, we'd be okay. And luckily they came and, uh, you know, the rest is history. Jesse Cole is the owner of the Savannah Bananas. Jesse, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And Maceo Harrison is the dancing first base coach or the first base dance coach. He's also the choreographer for the Savannah Bananas. Maceo, thank you for being here. Thank you so much. This was a blast. I love talking to you guys. All right, folks, that's it for us today. But before we go, I just need to take a minute to say a few words about Katerina Barton. Listen, making radio is definitely a team sport. And Katerina is what we call a franchise player. She does it all. The pitches that she brings to the table are relevant, timely, and on brand. But she also surfaces lots of original, engaging, unique, and as you heard, fun ideas. Well, she's more than just an idea factory. Katarina is unparalleled in execution. She finds guests, she dives into facts, she preps questions, and she writes the cleanest copy around. But wait, there's more. On any given morning, Katarina might be playing the role of fill-in line producer. She might lead the morning meeting as backup for our senior producer. Afternoons could find her out in the field on assignment and evenings she might be helping out with script edits for the team. She's steady, accountable, kind, and incredibly talented. Katarina is simply a quietly inspiring team leader. But for me, what sets Katarina apart is her heart for the stories that she tells. I know you heard it today. Her heart is in every single one of them. So thanks so much just for being you, KB. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. The takeaway has been home for me for a really long time. Um, and it's nice to hear those words. All right, everybody. Thanks so much to all of y'all for listening. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is The Takeaway.